0: Test. there we are. All right, it is 9.15. The holy ones are seated. The others are walking around. All those in the back, we are starting. So it's not too late to come to Sunday school. I see people going in the opposite direction. (laughs) That tells you everything you need to know. One minute and we'll get started. Grab your seats, grab your coffee, grab your Bibles and everything else of value. Looks like we have the diehards. This is very, very interesting. Our group here this morning, this is good. All right, I think I'm going to go ahead and get us started, and the rest folks can uh, just uh, have to make do. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you've given us this nice, crisp, clear, beautiful Sunday morning in which we can gather to learn more about you. As we continue, Father, to go through the uh, shorter catechism, we're thankful for these men who came before us, who understood the Scripture so well, and who... Um, Uh, Put it in a way that really, truly does summarize your word. We do pray, Lord, as we learn the catechism, that what we're really learning is what Scripture teaches. And in learning that, that we might really learn who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus and what it is that you expect of us in gratitude. And so, Father, open our eyes toward that end. Help us to have clear understanding. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, again, as, uh, as we've done before, I'm going to ask you to turn in your catechisms. You'll either find that um, on, uh, in the hymnal, uh, somewhere around page 870, I'm told. Uh, or, of course, you can look it up online or have your own personal copy. And we're going to jump right into that this morning. We're going to continue looking at Adam and dealing with some very, very important uh, aspects of the fall uh, that we want to get into, we brought a little bit up of that stuff before, but we got to really dive in today. So when we 've uh, got that we 're going to read just like we did last week we 're going to do two questions. Now, let me just review last week we did thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen, <clears throat> and what we were really dealing with was the nature of sin. And we talked about a couple of very important things that are going to play into today 's before we read it today we 're going to do sixteen and seventeen, but just by way of review, Remember that we said that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So in other words, your failure to do something that God asks of you or you're doing something that God prohibits is sin. Uh, and that uh, the referent in all this was, and this is the important part I want to bring out again, is that it says conformity or transgression of the law of God. And we said that God is the one who determines what is right or wrong. There is no abstract right or wrong to which God conforms. If God had to conform to a standard of right and wrong other than himself, he would not be God. But God himself defines what that standard is. So we can sit here all day and we can come up with our own systems and we can rationalize and we can say why this is right or this is right. And in the end, none of it matters. It's what God determines is right or wrong. And that is our ultimate standard. And that really makes all the difference in the world in how you approach life and how you approach everything else in terms of ethics. Uh, you know, we got churches today that are saying, you know, what's important. Uh, uh, yesterday I was watching my beloved Miami Dolphins come within two seconds of winning a game, they lost in the last two seconds. Uh, to the Buffalo Bills who are doing really, really well this year. And I was noticing on the back of the helmets, uh, on the back of the helmets was saying something like choose love or something of, to that extent. And, of course, you know what the reference there is. It doesn't matter who you love, right? As long as uh, you love that person, it doesn't matter whether, you know, they're the same sex or, or whatever. You know, those things are irrelevant. Uh, we, we can come up with all sorts of rationalizations. Why should, you know, you limit who I care, who I marry, you know, same-sex or otherwise. We come up with all of that, and we as Christians can counter that with uh, all sorts of uh, arguments that are traditional. Or I hear uh, people saying marriage has been around for 5,000 years. Uh, not, I don't care if it was the day after creation. Our argument would not be, oh, marriage has been around for the last 24 hours. The argument is, God said. You see, it's as simple as that. Uh, one of the interesting things that we see, and I'm just giving you this, I know we haven't read the question yet, but I think it's just important for us to focus on that. We played that little clip uh, last week. Um, uh, why am I, uh, his name is eluding me. Um, Yes, thank you. Halister (laughs) Bay from uh, Cleveland. Well, actually, he's from Scotland, but he lives in Cleveland and pastors there. And we had that little clip that we played where you remember he was talking about um, all these different uh, uh, issues of the day, you know, transgenderism and abortion and euthanasia. And he said the real issue is not that. The real issue is where are we in our commitment to the word of God? And that becomes increasingly clear with our own reading and really with all the things that follow so it's very important for us to reiterate that Um, interestingly in 2nd Corinthians Paul has a really really fascinating section Uh, it's really just one of a piece he he starts in chapter 3 and uh, rolls through chapter 4 I I don't know that I can just tell you exactly right here because it's all like one big thought But the part I'm thinking of is in chapter (coughs) 4 um the very beginning, the very end of three and beginning of four, where he basically says it's enough to just present the word of God. Now, <clears throat> this is Paul, who himself at times does apologetics, defending and so on. But he's saying that the defense is in the word itself. And C.H. Spurgeon uh, used to have this idea, this, this phrase of saying that the word is like a caged lion. All we have to do is open up the cage. The word goes out. And then, of course, Isaiah, uh, God tells us in Isaiah that uh, it will accomplish the purpose for which uh, he set it out. And sometimes that's to harden the heart. Sometimes it's to soften the heart. But the word always has one of those two effects. And that's where Jesus' parable of the sower, you know, it's going to land on good soil or it's going to land on soil that's going to respond in several ways that ultimately don't lead to anything. So all that is very important because in today's day and age, we come up with all these Explanations or rationalization. Even if we defend the traditional Christian views, the real defense is going back to what God says. It's as simple as that. And and people sit there and say that's not an argument. And and the argument and the answer is, actually, yes, it is. He's your Creator. He has said it. Now you've got to choose what you've got to do with it. So, okay. With that, then let's go ahead and take a look at questions sixteen and seventeen. Again, somewhere around page eight seventy in your Trinity hymnal or. Uh, whatever you have, and if I can ask somebody to read question sixteen with the answer and then somebody else if you 'll please read seventeen with the answer we 'll just do those back to back. Can I get a reader for the first please, Rob yes. Thank you. Uh, question 17, if somebody will read that.: All right, thank you both. OK, so let's launch into these. and let's just take uh, verse seven, uh, verse. Uh, question 17 first. We've been seeing God establishing the world through creation. Remember, we said God's eternal decree works, out, works itself out. In two different ways, in creation and providence. So he's created the world, and then in his providence, he superintends all of creation. As we said, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass, right? So we looked at, uh, two weeks ago, what was the, the initial act of providence that God made with humankind in terms of relationship? And we saw that he established a covenant. And let's go back to that and just briefly remember A covenant is not an agreement between equals. It is God as the superior uh, dictating the terms of the relationship. He lays out what the stipulations are of the relationship between God and mankind. And in that case, it was very, very simple. It was, I am your God, you are my people, a refrain we see all throughout the whole of Scripture. And for that to... To maintain, for the situation to obtain, actually, What what will have to happen is I'm giving you everything. I am blessing you beyond anything that you deserve. And we talked about the gracious aspect of that covenant, not in the sense of the covenant of grace, but that first covenant, which we call the covenant of life, other times called the covenant of works, is still gracious in the sense that God doesn't owe us anything. He does not owe us life. He does not owe us eternal life. He could have created us for 15 minutes. And then poofed us us into non-existence, and that would have been gracious. So God is gracious in that he gives us everything. And then he says, I'm going to let you, I've made this whole universe for you to enjoy, and it's all for you, but in order for you to show that you obey me and you love me, I don't want you to eat of this one tree. And as we saw, he gave every inducement to Adam to not eat of that tree. It's not like, you know, he deprived Adam and left the one good thing out of his grasp. He gave him all these good things. He also made very clear the consequences of what it would mean to disobey. It would be death. But he laid out a very, very simple path before him. And as we saw last week, in the end, we looked at the perversity of what it really meant, that Adam, fully aware of what the consequences were, Still chose to disobey. So we did that last week. We won't go into it here. But the point is, there's the covenant, this relationship until which uh, uh, God enters into uh, this relationship with us. And then, looking at question 17, first, his failure to keep that relationship, which we talked about last week, says, he brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And we've already said the word estate, it's an old-fashioned word. Today we think of an estate as a big land holding. It really means condition, right? So there's these four conditions that we've been looking at. The first condition of blessedness, you know, we're before the pre-fall. But now in the fall, this condition of sin and misery. And we're going to be unpacking that through the catechism. The condition in which we live today is one where we are still sinners. We talked a whole lot about that last week. And the result is misery. And those two go hand in hand. They're vitally important, again, for the apologetic purpose that people look around and they see the world and it's messed up. And you can tell that the world is messed up. But it doesn't take very long to figure that out and to figure out that something is wrong. And despite, you know, that somebody dies and we say, oh, it's the circle of life. If that were the case, if evolution designed death as part of that, we would not cry when people die we wouldn 't we would just we 'd sit there and say, "Oh, okay, circle of life, uh, throw them in the fire and let 's cook them for you know for dinner or something because that would be the most efficient thing to do right evolution and all that we don 't do that. people intuitively being made in the image of God and with the law of God still written on their hearts, even though it 's been marred by the fall, still get that there 's something at the core, fundamentally wrong. We see people dying. The scripture tells us that death is a consequence of sin. We have folks who deny that. They deny sin. They deny that God dictates that law. This is what we were starting with. And that's the reason there's death. Whether they deny it or not, the fact remains that there is misery all around us in our suffering and everything, you know, everyday world. And that... There is something that's causing that, and of course, we have the answer. We say that's sin. So I just want to start with that uh, last uh, uh, question. And last week, we looked at those four conditions. You remember we talked about those. We're not going to get too far into them today just by way of pointing them out. But we said we had, and and we were really talking about your freedom and your ability, and we're not going to get into that today. But you have your your pre-fall condition, we're going to keep coming back to this chart again and again and again. And then you have your fall. You're redeemed. And you're glorified. What happens? Not just when you die, but really when Christ returns. And, we, you know, we were talking about man is both free and able in the fall to do good and evil. After the fall, we remain free to do good and evil, but we're unable to do good. When you're redeemed, you match up with this again. You're both free to do good and evil and you're able to do good and evil. But at the new heavens and new earth, you'll again be free to do good and evil. You'll be, remember we said that last week, you'll be actually free to sin. In, in the new heavens and new earth, you simply won't be able to. And there's, you know, the, the big difference. So, and that's like this, in that in, in the false state, we're unable to do good. In the glorified state, we're unable to do evil. And it's because of our nature. So I'm going to just leave it there at that. And I want to get into more of question 16 and the fact that how we actually fell, Because the how, that really is important here. So that that, uh, question 16, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity. There is the key part, this idea of representation all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So even though it was Adam who sinned, it is as if we all sinned with him. That's what we're being told. And we looked at this last week. So there's an aspect of solidarity here, of oneness, where he represents all of us. And we have to wrestle with that. Again, we can argue with it. That's not fair and all that other stuff. And we looked at that last week, no, two weeks ago, uh, the aspect of fairness. God chose Adam as our representative, and just like in Congress, when you choose a representative, that person is supposed to go and do what you would do if you were there. So they're supposed to go to, you know, Austin, or they're supposed to go to Washington, D.C., and vote on the issues, just as if you were the one voting on the issues. Because we live in a fallen world, uh, they don't always represent you exactly like they ought. But the one who chose uh, Adam as a representative was God, and he always makes perfect choices. So he chose a person, Adam, who did exactly what you and I would have done. And that's a a very key part, and we'll see that in just a moment as to why that's important. Um, But just think of it this way, then. When we looked at that several weeks ago, we were simply talking about the imputation of sin. Remember, imputation means to count. You know, reckon, reckon him righteous. That's what he says about Abraham, his faith. Because of his faith, he was reckoned, counted as righteous, imputed righteousness. We're talking about that legal aspect of saying you get the record of Adam's sin. You didn't actually do it, but you receive it. But what we're looking at here in today's question goes a step beyond simply the legal imputation or reckoning of guilt. That happens. The real question is, that we're dealing with is uh, one of actual ability. Psalm 51.5 says, In sin my mother conceived me. I was sinful in birth, and in sin was I conceived. And the very idea that from the moment of conception you are already sinful, does that simply mean that you have the imputation from the moment of conception? Or does it mean that we are also sinful inherently? And the answer to that is pretty clear, and the catechism here uh, lays it out. We are sinful inherently as well. So even if we had not received the guilt of Adam, because we are fallen in our very uh, natures, we will sin. In other words, you know the old adage, are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners? And the answer is we sin because we're sinners. It's in our nature ever since the fall. And that's what the question is getting at. It's this idea that because Adam messed up and, and fell, and he represents all of us, as a result, all those who are descended from him by ordinary generation, uh, what is ordinary generation? You, know, you all understand, by regular means of procreation and so on. We also fall with him and we inherit that nature. Now there's some questions as, well, how does that happen? And I think you know there's an analogy that G. I. Williamson uses. I think it's a good analogy. We'll use it. Imagine a tree, right? Okay, it's a palm tree. I obviously I'm still thinking of Hawaii. Maybe that's not the best thing. Got the little coconuts. Or maybe we'll do a deciduous tree because that's what everybody is used to around here. Right? So there's your your tree. And uh, it's got fruit on it. I know that should be red, right? It should be apples or whatever. Okay, if the fruit, if, I'm sorry, if the tree is diseased and bad, what's the fruit going to be? Diseased, it's going to be bad, right? It inherits its nature from the tree, right? It's its just simple, straightforward, Uh uh, science, as it were, that we all in our everyday experience can relate to. This is the point. Adam, then, is that tree, and all of us who are descended from him are inherently uh, sinful. We're unable to bring forth good fruit because we already have that sinful nature in us. As simple as an illustration as that is, it really does capture most of what it is that's being communicated here. Um, Let's see if I can um, bring in some scripture passages. I've skipped about three of them already. because I'm just going on and on and on. So let me go back and just uh, talk about this oneness, this unity. Uh, In Acts 17, 26, uh, Paul says that God has made of one blood all the nations of men uh, to dwell on all the face of the earth. Just, again, that unity. But the fact that we then, because we are connected and all come out of Adam, we have this uh, broken nature, this fallen nature. Uh, you can read in uh, several places. Uh, Job fourteen four, for example, just making the argument about um, uh, the, uh, how good things, uh, bad things can't produce good things. He says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Uh, then later in Job 25, 4, he says, how can he be clean that is born of a woman? So now he's talking very clearly about uh, not just in general, but, uh, and of course, born of a woman means any person, you know, any person born, any human being, how can that person be sinless? So that's the very first thing that this question 16 establishes. Uh, our fall is not just an imputation of sin, but actually transforms us in terms of our nature. We are born with a fallen nature, born with a sinful nature. Uh, now that has all sorts of implications, as you can imagine. Uh, One of those is uh, a very common thing that you hear amongst um, a lot of believers is this idea that what happens... So, you know, one of my first uh, um, calls that I got in the chaplaincy, in the military chaplaincy, uh, was actually from a uh, naval base. I was in the Air Force, but it was a naval base an hour away, and I I guess they didn't have enough chaplains at the moment, and they called us. And, um, you know, a young seaman... or uh, maybe a petty officer, but it was a young enlisted guy. He and his wife uh, had just lost their child, and of course they want to know: is my child, or you know, or in heaven, right? That's that's the question that comes up. You know, what what do we what do we say? What, do, um, or when we look at a little child and we say, is he is is he good? You know, is a is a child or sh- is she you know good? And so uh, there's this idea that we find in a lot of uh, uh, evangelical Christianity, this age of accountability, that uh, a child is not accountable for their sinful behavior until a a certain point. Now, notice I said for their sinful behavior, because if you don't think that kids can't sin, then you probably don't have kids. Um, Because once you have them, you very quickly learn that they learn, what's their first word? Do they really learn? Do they understand fully? no. And, you know, that's, and you're going to quickly realize the idea of defiance. By the way, it's on purpose. Uh, God said, because, you know, at at the fall, God could have said, I'm just going to wipe you all off the face of the earth. I mean, you know, and he came close to doing that um, at the flood. Also came close to doing that at Mount Sinai when they had, uh, you know, he had just redeemed them and (laughs) and brought them uh, you know, to a point of redemption, he's giving them the law on how to live, and they're like, yeah, we're going to do whatever we want. And he's like, I'm done. I'm done with these people. That's God, you know, then Moses intercedes and all this other stuff. But the point is, God couldn't have done that. But instead, he's, the fall really basically is about getting your attention. The fall is saying, oh, you want to live life without me? Then this is what life is like without me. And that's where the state of misery comes in. And one of the reminders is, do you want to see what it's like to have rebellion by your creatures? I put you over all the creation, and that's why animals and everything else now rebels against us. Tigers and cobras and all that that you used to be able to hang out with are now going to turn on you. Even your dog is going to turn on you at some point, that kind of thing. And you see it in your children. Your children are going to rebel the exact same way that you rebelled against me. You're going to say something that's for their own good, and they're going to look you in the face, and they're going to say, no. Right? So all this just kind of sets the stage for how we behave and the kind of things that we do. But the implication here is what does it mean then for a child? What is this age of accountability? Where do we find it in Scripture? You don't, you don't see you know, People say, oh, age 12 or something. Uh, why? Because age 12 is usually what my own study has shown. Maybe somebody's got something else on this, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, a lot of people sit there and say, well, that's when Jewish tradition says that you become a man okay, that's great, Jewish tradition. So all of a sudden we're like Roman Catholics and we say tradition is what counts. And it's it's just, it's really kind of funny how we've invented this in evangelical Christianity, this whole theory of salvation out of whole cloth. There's nothing in scripture that talks about um, two different systems of salvation because that's in essence what we are positing. We're saying people are saved by making a choice for God, You know, you hear the gospel and you respond. But if you don't hear that, you go to hell unless you're under, like, a certain age. And then you're not responsible for your sin. And you don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Instead, what you see again and again and again and again is we're born in sin. And from the moment of conception, we're sinners. And it's because of what it says here. That little child, born already by ordinary generation, the way babies are produced, Inherently brings sin into that child's very nature. Does that make sense? He does not pick up the sinfulness later on. He does not absorb it later on. If we hold to this view of age and accountability, we either have to say that they truly are pure, without sin, and at some point the switch gets flipped. What time does the switch get flipped? Is it the first time they defy you? How about if they defy you at age, you know, six months? And they will. Or at one uh, one year old? Is that when, oh, that's still t- too early because they don't know what they're doing. So when does the switch get flipped? There's no indication. And when it does get flipped, what happens? Does God then interject and give them a sinful nature as well as imputing the guilt of sin, those two different things? Does he... Or are they already sinful, but he just excuses their behavior automatically? Do you see all the different permutations? None of this is made clear in Scripture. You don't find any evidence of of this plan B of salvation. The reason we have it is for simply uh, nostalgic and sentimental reasons. We can't imagine that little Billy or little Susie are as sinful as we are. And yet, that's the truth. What happens is this. Now, here's what's going on with your cute and very innocent child. I'm sorry, you're like, oh, this guy's evil. He's up there, man, just railing on my kids. I'm just going to tell you. What happens is your children are as sinful as you are. They are less practiced. And what you find with children is that they learn how better to express their sin. That's what you see growing, as it were, is their ability to express their sinful nature. Can okay, you follow? So it's very important for us to establish that. Now, I want to get back to this in just a moment. Our time, is, is always, grows short. Uh, let, let me just cover some other things that we have already, to some extent, covered. We've been talking about the solidarity here, the aspect of oneness, the idea that uh, Adam represents us. But, of course, there are several things. If we look at, um, oh, let's see, did I skip some more scripture? Oh, no, no, we yeah. have uh, if we look at Romans chapter 5, which we looked at two weeks ago in great detail, we can turn there if we'd like. Romans 5 from 12 on discusses the first Adam and the second Adam. Jesus is that second Adam. And it presents very clearly the idea that the first few verses, 12, 13, and so on, 14, that Adam uh, sinned in a particular way, which we don't necessarily uh, have to do in other words you don't have to go and pick a fruit in the center of the garden for you to be sinful that's the actual transgression of Adam and we separate that actual transgression of which we have our own actual transgressions you said a lie in this in this case or you uh, um, thought something inappropriate you know and you did all that and Adam didn't do actual transgressions But you still have imputed to you the guilt of that first transgression, and that's what we call original sin. And uh, that's not a scriptural term. It's like the word Trinity. It's just a word that we apply to something that we can read about in Scripture but didn't have a name uh, just so that we can intelligently discuss it. So when we talk about original sin, there is, of course, the original sin, the actual transgression where Adam actually ate of the fruit in, in the tree in the middle of the garden. But there's the idea of that original sin. The guilt of it is then imputed to all of us. And because of that, it poisons his very nature. And because he's now the diseased tree, everyone who is descended from him also uh, inherits that sinful nature. And you're born already with a disposition to sin. By the way in case you're wondering, uh, okay, if there's no two different plans of salvation, one for children under a certain age or whatever, uh, how, what hope is there? And there's plenty of hope. In the broad evangelical world, let me take a look at baptism. Let me use baptism as an example. This may be a, a bit more complex than we need to do here, and, and maybe it'll make more sense when we get to baptism later in the catechism. But very often people see baptism, right? You come up here, you make a profession of faith as, as an adult, or at least as a person able to express uh, your, your faith. And, and I've asked people, what is, baptism, what is it? And baptism is where you get to say to people, I made a choice for Christ, right? You get baptized and so on. I made a choice for Christ. And what we're going to see is when we get to the question of baptism and so on, baptism is not about the choice that you made. Baptism, just like the Lord's Supper, is about what God has done in Christ, And what God God has done in Christ is he's taken you, and baptism represents, uh, where the Lord's Supper represents his ongoing, uh, his death and the ongoing idea that because of that he's with us and so on. Baptism is a one-time thing that represents your translation from one kingdom to another, from one state, one condition of sin and misery into another, right? So you get saved, taken out of the old kingdom, you brought into the kingdom of God. And, of course, the washing away represents the, the removal of the one thing that kept that from happening, which was your sin, and Jesus removes it. Okay, so we got that. But baptism is about what God has done. So even though if you're an adult believer or, you know, and you're able to express your faith at baptism, we see that as the response to what God has done. And we'll get into that when we talk about the order of salvation, which comes a little later in this class. But the idea is, remember, well, you have a fallen nature, a broken nature. You inherit it from Adam, that nature gets regenerated, right? Second Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And many other passages, John 3.3, Jesus says, if you're to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. So there has to be this radical change. We do not do that change. You do not choose Christ, and then he regenerates you. No child chooses to be born, nor do you choose to be born again. God does it for you. And it's all about his doing, and you respond in faith and repentance. You see how that goes? And then you're expressing that faith and repentance publicly. When we received, was it last week that we received the new members, or two weeks ago? I think it was maybe two weeks ago, right? Two weeks ago, yeah. It all blurs together, Julie, I just, yeah. Um, we ask those folks those, those membership questions It's a public profession of faith. That doesn't mean that we're saved at that moment or anything. But again, that's a response to what it is that God has done. Once we understand that dynamic, then the idea of our salvation no longer so much depends on our choice. I'm not saying you don't choose, and we'll talk about more of this in detail later. You do choose Christ, but you're choosing Christ as a response to what he has already done. And it is wholly possible to have only, uh, so in the reformed view of things that we like to think more biblical view, of, you don't need a plan of salvation for regular people where they choose Christ, then they're saved. And if they don't choose Christ, they don't, they aren't saved. And then babies and, and, and all that. And what do you do with people who are so cognitively disabled that they could never, you know, you've got to have a plan B for them for salvation, all of which is not in Scripture. But out of your sympathy and out of your sentimentalism, we created one. No, you can have the same same system of scripture. In fact, the Westminster Confession has a whole section on that—that that children born in, in, you know, in death and so on, uh, people who are cognitively disabled. It calls them idiots, but that's the word that was used back in the day, not the way we use it today as an insult. Uh, they're still chosen and still saved by Christ. In fact, uh, when we read in—and this is just one of bazillion passages I can bring out—when we read in Acts chapter two. Verse 39 and Peter says, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. And he's talking to Jews and he's saying we're bringing the Gentiles in as well. Uh, it's funny, he says it under the inspiration of the Spirit and then he forgets it later in Acts chapter 10. He has to be reminded. But the, the point simply being that God can choose. And so I go to that, that couple uh, in, in uh, Pensacola uh, Naval Air Station. And the first thing I've got to determine is, are they believers or not? Because if they're believers, I can give them assurance and say, uh, you know, this is the child of the covenant. And the promise is to you and to your children. that child has done, and Scripture makes clear that the children are part of the covenant unless they reject it. Well, this child has done nothing to reject the covenant. So you can have assurance. What do we do, by the way, side note, when it's clear that, that both of them are unbelievers, then the answer is always, they're in the hands of God. He always does the very best thing. So that's the best you can offer people, but you know um, that's, what we, that's what we tell them. Uh, when they ask, where's my little boy? Where's my little girl? They're in the hands of God, a good and gracious God who will always do the very best. Uh, could God have chosen to save that child even though he's not a covenant child? He could have. I'm not promising them that, but I'm just saying the hands of a good God. Uh, that's an aside. But if you are, even if one of you is a believer, that is enough to, to say with, uh, with real assurance. So we don't need two plans of salvation. It's always God saves. Okay, uh, I need a, uh, yeah, running out of time. Let's bring it back. As we talk about ordinary generation, there's one exception that we have to that scenario in all of humanity. What is that one exception? Sunday school answer? Jesus, yes. Yes. Jesus is not born of ordinary generation. That's why it's so important that he's born the way he is. Luke chapter 1, verse 34, Mary says, and we just read this last week, how shall this be, seeing I do not know a man? In other words, she's not had sexual relations. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the, high, uh, uh, of the high, uh, uppermost, uh, depending on your translation, the highest, shall overshadow you, therefore... Uh, that uh, that holy thing uh, shall be, uh, which is within you shall be born of you and shall be called the son of God. Uh, then we, of course, read in Matthew chapter 1 where the emphasis is more on Joseph. And it says that he did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. So it's very, very clear that Jesus is born in ways uh, unlike all of us. Absolutely essential. Um, a lot of people sit there and say the virgin birth is not essential to, you know, it's, it's a miracle and all that. And we believe it, but, you know, I don't have to defend it because what just matters is that a person believes in Jesus, not how he came about. But, no, it makes all the difference in the world. If Jesus had been born by ordinary generation, based on what we're seeing in Scripture, what would he have been born as? A sinner, yeah. So you have to break the mold, in fact, today's sermon is uh, coming out of Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is, has one purpose. It is to show who Jesus is and what he is, what he is, metaphysically. It's, it's that kind of book. Um, and and it, it, it goes out of its way to establish uh, that the only way that he could be our mediator, he could be our high priest, and he could be our sacrifice is the fact that he is unlike every other uh, human being in that he's sinless and yet it also goes out of its way to explain but for him to be a substitute he must be fully human and we'll talk about that today's sermon as a matter of fact Um, but that's the point here Jesus is fully human and yet he had to break the mold in regard to this ordinary generation so he has to grow from his own tree now that brings up something that's very very interesting Do I have time to get into it? Yes, it'll be a lot of fun. Before I do that, let me go back to Matthew five and talk about this idea of the representative idea that Adam represents us. We already really unpacked that two weeks ago, so I don't want to unpack that all again unless there's some um, some question about it. But Romans five nineteen says, you know, by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, or you know, constituted or reckoned as sinful. So, yes, this idea that what Adam does is our representative applies to us. And, and we already looked at the whole thing. You know, oh, that's not fair. And if I had been there, I would have made a different choice. And No, you would not. God chose exactly who, uh, who represents you well and so on and so on. Um, oh, wait, yeah, I did script skip. I keep looking at my notes and um, some passages that we skipped here. That's all right. We'll get to them. Uh, but the, the point simply being is that in the same way that Adam represents us, then Jesus represents us as our substitute. In this case, it's not disobedience, but obedience. And it's that obedience of Christ that gets imputed to us. So you did not live a perfect and sinless life. He did. But as, when we exercise faith in him and so on, that obedience is given to us. It's reckoned, imputed to us. So even as we sit there and say, it's not fair that Adam represents us, then we can't go ahead and claim it's not fair that Jesus represents us. You see? Because the reality is, even if you don't believe that Adam represents you, you yourself are a sinner. We already have enough plenty of actual transgressions that we're we're guilty before God. So what answer are we going to give him? Oh, I'll trust in Jesus. Oh, but that's representation. So you see, if you can accept one, It's not a leap to accept the other. Does that make sense? So let me just leave it there and and just finish up with the one section that I really do want to talk about, which is Jesus is the exception in ordinary generation. That's what enables him to be born sinless. But now that brings up a question that, again, you might sit there and say, how important is this? Okay, you don't need this to be a believer, but it still is an important thing to look at, which is, if it's not just the imputation of the guilt, the reckoning of our guilt as sin, but we ourselves and our very nature are fallen. A child is, again, we get into all these strange things when we say a child is born innocent. Do they start sinning at some point? Um, yes, very early on, as we know with our children. Is that the point in which they become sinful? But that still, you know, can happen so early, like literally in the first year. You'll see it. Um, and, and and look, I admit there are some parents that don't see it, and they're two-year-olds, and that's why the two-year-olds run the household. Um, you all know exactly what I'm talking about. You've seen it in certain play instances or whatever. But most people are able to say this child is disobedient. That child has sinned. Is God not counting that sin towards that person? At what point does he start counting it? You know, again, we don't have any scriptural evidence that there's some age, you know, magical age. And at what point then does the child then get that imputation, or at what point does the child get an actual nature of sin? Does God have to step in and give him that new nature at that point? You see how kind of weird it gets? But if you do trace that back, though, even if we agree, and I think Psalm 51.5 is sort of a uh, kind of seals the deal because it says in that from the moment of conception you're sinful. So I think, you know, that kind of has established the baseline there. How does that happen? How does that happen? And that's the question that's before us. And there's two different views, and I'm just going to put them up here, and then we should end with that today. And again, this is the kind of stuff that, look, let's face it, you're not going to miss out on going to heaven if you don't get the right answer. And I'm not sure that we do have the right answer, because there are good, solid, Reformed folks on both sides of this. But there are two views that are out there today. One is called creationism. This does not mean creationism as in how God created the world, you know, six days or so on. It's, not, it's referring to how we ourselves are created as new creatures, new human beings, uh, not new as in redemptive. Let me rephrase that, but new life, you know, when children are born and so on. And traditionism. let's talk a little bit about those two. Um, So here's the deal. Creationism, did I bother to write down some passages for that or some? Okay, Uh, not until later, do I get some scripture passages? Okay. Creationism teaches this. you all know how the, the physical process works. sperm and egg come together and you know and you end up with um, a, a, a new little baby life and it grows from there and so on. In that process, contribution for the mother, contribution from the father, that physical body is created physically. By ordinary generation between a man and a woman. But the soul is created by God at that very moment. And God sort of infuses that soul into the body. And it's that soul that is then created, that is created with the imputation, with an imputed uh, righteousness, imputed sinfulness. Does that make sense? So that's creationism. Um, It might make sense if I read. This is one of the uh, texts that you can look up. The doctrine of creationism teaches that the body is derived from Adam by ordinary generation, whereas the soul is directly created by God. By this teaching, the physical part of our nature comes to us from our parents, but the non physical part, the soul or spirit, comes to us by an act of divine creation. And. The idea then is that, um, actually there's different views here on what happens with, um, with it. The idea is that the, body is physic- the physical body is corrupted in its creation uh, because it comes through ordinary generation. But the soul is not because God cannot create something which is uh, imperfect and sinful. So God creates a perfect little soul, but the minute it comes into contact with our physical body, It then um, becomes corrupted. Okay? Does that make sense? Now, very, very interesting. uh, You know, I'm teaching this class. It has nothing to do with what I was doing on on Sunday in in the pulpit. But last week, we looked at this view called dualism. You guys remember that? Dualism posits: body is bad, soul is good. What do we hear here? The body is bad, the soul is good. And when the soul is brought into contact with the body, only then does it become corrupted. Now, there are some problems with this view. Um, And the main problem is you don't read anywhere in Scripture the idea that, you know, like when God creates Adam, he creates him body and soul. And it's only, he's only alive at that moment. Uh, We don't have any indication of souls being corrupted because of the body. They're corrupted because of their behavior right? Adam's fall was not a physical fall that then corrupted his soul. If anything, you might argue that it was the soul that moved the body to do what it did. And it's the body that gets corrupted because of what the soul does. I mean, you look at it from that perspective. So there's a lot of problems with creationism. It's trying to protect. Again, um, it's actually coming from an idea of, well, we don't see how um, souls can be created by people. But um, that's what you're left with. And that's the second view. It's called traducianism. Uh, this, by the way, it has nothing to do with tradition. It may have the first four letters. It has nothing to do tr- with Traducianism sa- is from the Latin word, uh, meaning it comes and passes through. It all simply means passing through is what uh, that means. And the idea is that the whole of your nature passes through your parents to you. So that you yourself are body and soul created by ordinary generation. Your soul also. And you might say, well, we don't see that. Here's the point. Uh, And again, uh, creationism, I think, leans too heavily on attempts by science today. No one in science today can measure your soul. You've got just a normal human being, an adult human being. You can measure their heart and you, you you can look at all sorts of other organs and this and that but you don't see their soul and yet we we affirm that the person has one right science is unable to detect it by the same token it would make sense that if a soul is part of your ordinary generation from your parents that those same scientific procedures are not going to see it in the in 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 that moment of conception egg and sperm come together and you know we see a physical form coming out of that we don't see the spiritual But then you don't see the spiritual in an adult. Does that make sense? You see where we're coming from on that? So I I, I think that argument that, well, you don't see, we don't see how the egg and sperm coming together makes a soul, you don't see the soul in the adult. So the argument, I think, loses its force from that perspective. Um, When you look at passages like in Genesis 5-3, where it's talking, there's a list of... of, um, Uh, Adam and his children and all, you know, and this one begat that one who begat that one who begat that one. It's very important to read the line that says, Adam begat in his own likeness after his own image. We don't beget physical shells. We're body and soul and we beget after our own likeness, body and soul. And we've argued in other situations when we were looking at the fact that we were created in God's image, and I made the argument that your image is not simply your soul, which is actually, this is what's so funny, is that creationism is the reverse of the way we normally see things. A lot of people when talking about being made in the image of God don't think that it's their bodies. They think it's only their spirit. And we've argued before, you need your body in order to be able to be made in the image of God. So for example, we've said God is creative. That's one of his attributes. He's creative. You are, in reflection of God, creative. But you can't create beautiful music or a beautiful sculpture or a beautiful garden unless you can see and manipulate things with your hands and your eyes and so on. So your body actually is what enables your soul to operate and to do things. So you are a unity in that regard. You're not a duality, even though you have two components. You are a unity, body and soul. That's what makes a person. A person is not the soul inside Who then escapes? That's dualism that we saw last week. A person is body and soul. And so it's very, very interesting that if it says Adam begat in his own likeness after his own image in Genesis 5.3, it's not just referring to his begetting a body. We need the soul, and we've actually, you know, again, those who argue this, sometimes argue the other, that it's only the soul that's made in the image. And, then, and, and saying that, they undermine their own argument here, if, that, if, if you can follow where I'm getting at. Uh, so there's several things. One is, um, nowhere in Scripture do you ever find God talking about his creating souls individually and going in, you know, every time somebody's born, he has to go out of his way to create a soul. In fact, what does it uh, say on the seventh day? And God rested from all his creation does not mean that he no longer works. We see him working in terms of providence, but we don't see him creating. And so he set it in motion, and through ordinary generation, human beings are born body and soul because Adam begets after his own likeness. Does that make sense? So there are some arguments against Traducianism uh, as well. Some people uh, can bring up, you can look those up on the internet. so inclined, but it's now 10.10. We're out of time. So I'm going to leave it there um, and just we'll end with any comments or questions. There's a, there's a lot there. Look, you can be a creationist, you can be a traditionist, and it's not going to affect directly, you know, whether you believe in Christ or so on. Unlike the virgin birth, which is an actual belief that if you don't believe in, you can have no no salvation. Uh, because if, if he's sinless, if he's not sinless, if, if he's not born of a virgin breaking the mold, then he will inherit sinfulness and he cannot be, you know, a sinless savior. So that really, really matters. I think Traditionism is the one that, uh, in terms of how you yourself are created and you create children, it's the one that best explains how that posterity, your your kids, your descendants, are corrupted in their nature, both body and soul. It's because that's passed on. And if we can't measure it, well, we can't measure a soul anyway. So... Let me just turn it over to you without further ado because of our time. Questions, comments? Not a one. Wow. Okay. Oh, yeah, by all means. Traducianism, yep. Yeah, I mean, and if you look at it from the perspective of you're in the covenant, the little child, you know, there's a covenant child. We baptize them, not because that child has made a decision, nor because we believe that just because we pour water on their head, that automatically at that moment saves them. I, I can't tell you how many times somebody has come into our church out of, you know, a more broad evangelical or baptistic background. They say, you guys believe in baptismal regeneration. They may not use those words, but that's the technical term for them. It's like, no, absolutely not. We don't believe that at that moment, the person is saved. All that ba- oh, the baptism does is represent that promise. And it's the parents recognizing that God has made that promise. And they're, um, they're agreeing because what you're saying, Leng, is God uses means. And he does that all throughout. He uses means. The preaching of the word is means. He, he can just go and zap everybody and just save them and zoom them all up to heaven. But he's chosen to use means. Ordinarily, that's how God works in everything special act of creation but once he created he set the world on its course and in providence there's all sorts of means you are fed by means it tells us that god is the one who actually feeds us and psalm says uh i forgot now which psalm i'm sorry i'm just drawing a blank but that he, um, he he gives his food to all the creatures and so on god does not literally go down and feed the ravens or the you know the sheep or whatever he uses means and it rains, and the crops grow, and the grass grows, and the trees, you know, grow fruit and all that, right? The means for that child, who already is a covenant child and belongs to God, to become uh, mature in their faith is parents. He's chosen that social structure to raise them up. So, but that child is, if he's a believer, he's one of the elect already, you know, in the, in the pipeline. God's already done it, and it's his initiative and his action. Yeah, but good point. Anything else before uh, we close for the morning? Nope, all good? All right, that's uh, that's good. Let's go ahead and stop here. Next week, no Sunday school because it's Christmas. The week after that, no Sunday school because it's uh, uh, New Year's Day. Uh, of course, we will have worship because uh, Christmas does not trump the Fourth Commandment, so there'll be worship on uh, Christmas Day as well as New Year's. Uh, But no Sunday school, so we will pick up question 18 on the 8th of January. So until then, uh, keep reading your catechisms, memorizing them, all that other stuff. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have taught us and given us in your word uh, enough that we can really deal with these weighty, weighty issues. And it is important to know, how did we get to this point in life? The world is clearly messed up all around us, and we do see it. And uh, we're thankful that we have the answers to the why. We can come to people in their distress and in their uh, anguish of living in in a condition and in a state of sin and misery, and we can say, this is why. But more than just why, we can then give them a true answer. They might wonder, why does Jesus matter? And only when we understand why we're fallen can we see how Jesus is the only answer. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, you give us opportunities to not just better understand this for academic reasons, but so that we can be more effective in providing relief and comfort through the gospel to our neighbors, to our family members, to our friends, and to all to whom you put in our path. Uh, We're thankful that in Jesus we do have redemption, and we're thankful that you did choose to have, uh, as we celebrate during this time of Advent, the incarnation, uh, one human being who uh, escaped the consequences of the fall so that he can be our representative, as Hebrews again and again and again tells us. Help us, Father, to cling to that truth uh, so that we never are left relying on our own. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.